Well, let's turn this morning to Luke chapter 5. We'll read a passage here to start as a jumping off point. We'll return to it briefly later. But we'll start in Luke chapter 5 in verse 27. After that, he that is the Lord Jesus Christ, after that he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Then, like now, tax collectors were not thought of in too favorable terms. Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, I'm sure most, if not all of you, are aware of the news that's been unfolding over the past few weeks related to Planned Parenthood and the undercover videos that are being released that give an inside look into just how depraved and horrific the abortion industry really is here in our country. Things that have long been kept hidden behind closed doors and whitewashed with euphemistic language are now being brought out into the open for all people to see. And not surprisingly, the mainstream media isn't saying much about it, but the word is getting out and people are watching and consciences are being pricked. And beloved, what we're seeing right now, I believe, is an opportunity unlike anything we've seen since Roe versus Wade in 1973. We should be thankful that these videos are being released, but now is not the time to lie down. And as I've been saying in our men's prayer meetings, now is the time for specific targeted prayer for our nation, and for the Holocaust of abortion. The release of these videos doesn't mark the end of the battle. It just marks the beginning of the battle. Now's the time to begin to pray. Pray that legal attempts to block the release of more videos would be thwarted. Pray that hearts and minds would be genuinely and radically changed. Pray for those in positions of power and authority that they would do whatever they can to support any legislation that would protect human life at its earliest stages. As one brother said, this daily destruction of human life should not even be legal, much less subsidized by the federal government. And as Christians, we sometimes debate amongst ourselves about politics and government and how deeply Christians ought to be involved in such things. But one thing there should be no debate about is that abortion as it presently exists in our country, is horrific, barbaric, and it's insane. And it must stop. It's a stronghold of the enemy that must be toppled. So, beloved, pray. Now's the time to pray. God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. 
But at the same time, I want to exhort you from another direction this morning as well. And as I was following the news this past week, an article came across my virtual desk on Wednesday and hit me like a ton of bricks. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time here this morning is share this article with you, first of all. It's not very long, but share this with you. And then I want to draw out from this article, draw out some biblical lessons um, for you, with you this morning, some biblical applications. I know some of you have seen this already because I've seen you talking about it online, but if you haven't, it would be a shame to miss this article. This was written by a sister named Patty Withers, who some of you have probably met. If you've been to Louisville, you've probably met Patty. Um, She's the women's ministry director at Emmanuel Church, Emmanuel Baptist there in uh, Louisville where Ryan Fullerton pastors. Uh, And the title of the article is, The Gospel is for Baby Killers. And I want to read this to you first and then talk a little bit about it. A couple of years ago, I sat on a panel of Christian post-abortive men and women. Silent No More is an annual event hosted on a university campus by a pro-life organization in our city. It gives students the opportunity to hear about the aftermath of abortion from a Christian's perspective. The woman I sat next to was amazing. Although she had had three abortions, she spoke openly about her sin of murder and confidently about the forgiveness she had received through the shed blood of Jesus. Afterwards, others who knew her told me about how she would stand outside the abortion clinic every Saturday morning, Bible open, trying to persuade women not to go in. She was brave, strong, well-spoken, and bold. I am not her. In fact, the only things we have in common are that we both committed murder and we both found forgiveness on the cross of Jesus. After the Lord saved me, it took me over a decade to speak openly about my abortion. For years, the only friend who knew about it was my husband. The shame of what I had done and the fear of being labeled combined with the overwhelming message of condemnation that I heard from the Christian community, kept me silent. And I suspect I'm not alone. No, I know I'm not alone. I remember sitting in a living room with some close friends a number of years back, shortly after I had spoken publicly for the first time about my abortion. Those friends knew my story and had heard me speak. Two of the men began talking between themselves about abortion, and one of them said, I just don't know how someone could do that. I just sat silently. What could I say? I don't know how I could have done that either. It's been hard to be on social media for the last three weeks. Scroll quickly past that image. Don't click on that video. Hide that from my news feed. Stop following that person. I'm not against the outrage. I, too, am outraged. I pray for the defunding of Planned Parenthood. What they are doing is evil. I want people to know about the horrors of abortion. I want it to stop. But something has been missing from the barrage, at least in my news feed and in my life. It's the gospel. As a post-abortive Christian woman, I'm tempted to accept the condemnation I often feel as my price to pay for what I did. I'm also tempted to accept the lack of care that I often feel as a consequence. I should find a way to be okay with the graphic pictures and the lone blog posts reaching out to the post-abortive person in my newsfeed. I should just grin and bear the fact that very few friends have asked me how I'm holding up in the midst of this tidal wave. When others begin talking about those people, 
I should sit silently and take my licks. Sin has consequences, and some sins have lifelong consequences. Some scarlet letters are meant to be worn for a lifetime. But that's a lie. If you're reading this as a post-abortive person, let me tell you some good news. I know that I need to hear some. The good news is that the gospel is for baby killers. When Jesus came to bear our sins in his body on the tree, he bore them all. There is no scarlet letter for you or for me. Christ wore that scarlet letter and died so that it could be taken away forever. We are forgiven. And not only that, we are loved. The Father set his love on us before the foundation of the world. Our omniscient, sovereign Father, who ordained all of our days before one of them came to be, loves us. When the Father looks at us, he sees his beloved Son. Because of that, we are beloved. If you're a Christian reading this who has never been a party to an abortion, praise God. No, seriously, praise God. Praise God that he spared you that sin. And praise God that he saved you from all of your sins, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But may I humbly ask that you remember us in the midst of your zeal to end abortion. Maybe a pause to think about who will see what you post before you post it. Maybe a phone call or a text to see how your post-abortive friend is holding up. If we truly believe that the gospel is the answer to all the ills we feel personally and societally, shouldn't our news feeds and our mouths be as full of the gospel as they are with the horrors of abortion? Now, at the risk of taking away from the simple power of that article, and it's a real risk that I'm taking, I want to take just a few minutes here and draw out three lessons from this article that I think are good for me to hear, first and foremost, and I hope that are helpful to you all as well. So three lessons. First of all, lesson number one is that we need to beware of the tendency to depersonalize issues that we're confronting. We need to beware of our tendency to depersonalize issues that we're confronting. Whether it's abortion or gay marriage or pornography or any of a number of issues that believers face today, we must always keep in mind that we're never simply dealing with an issue. We're never just dealing with sin as an impersonal concept. We're dealing with people, you see. We're dealing with human beings. Sins like abortion and homosexuality are manifested in and through real flesh and blood people. People created in God's image with infinite dignity and infinite worth. And in our zeal to confront an issue, we need to be careful that we don't run roughshod over the very people that we ought to be trying to minister to. After all, one of the primary reasons why we confront social issues in the first place is because of the effect that these issues have on people's souls, right? Institutionalized sin hurts people. Government-sanctioned sin hardens people to the seriousness of that sin. After all, a government says it's okay, so how bad can it be, right? 
So as Christians, we speak out about these things, yes, but we speak out because we love the souls of men and women created in God's image, and we don't want to see them hardened to their need of Jesus Christ by a gospel, or I'm sorry, by a government and a society that tells them that their sin is okay. So that's why we speak out. But the goal, beloved, is not to win the argument, it's to win the person. The goal is not simply to change laws, but to change hearts and to change eternal destinies. Governments and nations are temporary. The souls of men are forever. And if all people ever hear from us is condemnation of a particular sin, but no love or compassion for our fellow human beings who are ensnared in that sin, our Savior is not going to look very attractive to them. That's the bottom line. As Patty said in her article, the shame of what I had done and the fear of being labeled, combined with the overwhelming message of condemnation that I heard from the Christian community, kept me silent, and I suspect I'm not alone. See, we're not dealing with impersonal issues here. We're dealing with people. And we see this reality, don't we, so clearly in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was never content with simply preaching truth or performing miracles or confronting sin as things in themselves. These things were always done in the context of showing tenderness and compassion to real people with real needs. He looked them in the eye. He touched them. He walked with them. He talked with them. And he wept with them. He never depersonalized his ministry. He loved people. Now listen, he didn't just love the idea of loving people, which is what I'm guilty of a lot of times. What idea of loving people? That sounds really nice. Right? It's like you're in love with the idea of loving people. No. Jesus actually loved people. Got in there. Ate with them. He actually loved people. A couple of verses on this. Matthew chapter 9. When I was ordained as an elder here, Deanne asked me, Deanne Kelly asked me if she could make a plaque for me, a sign which I was glad to have done, and she asked me what to put on it, and this was, it was hard. I mean, you know, the, the Bible has a lot of stuff in it. What would you want on it? And uh, what I ended up having her put on it, because I felt like this was so important for me because of my tendencies, my personality type, to have this going into the ministry, what I had her put on it was a phrase from this passage. But Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35, it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, doing a lot of ministry. But notice what it says, next verse, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And that was the phrase I had Deanne put on that picture. Seeing the people, he felt. Seeing the people, he felt. Jesus saw people, real people, 
And when he saw them, he had an emotional response. He felt something. He felt compassion because they were distressed. They were literally harassed, thrown down like sheep without a shepherd. He loved people. One other verse here, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. As he, that is Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And then the man says to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And then notice what it says, these tender little details. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. You see that? He looked at him, and he felt a love for this man. And said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus saw people, and he felt compassion and love for them, regardless of the depth of their sin and their need. And that ought to be our goal, right? So that's the first lesson. Beware the temptation. Beware this tendency to depersonalize sins, issues that we're confronting. Lesson number two. As Christians, we shouldn't really be surprised by sin. As Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by sin. In her article, Patty mentions overhearing two men talking about abortion, and one of them says, I just don't know how someone could do that. And I sympathize with what they're saying, right? But at the same time, I have to ask, are we really surprised? As Christians, we shouldn't be. We should be grieved by sin, yes. But surprised by it? Shocked by it? Not so much. After all, God himself has given us divine revelation into the depths of sin hidden in the hearts of fallen men and women. And it's not a pretty picture, is it? Genesis 6.5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And since we're close to this one, turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 20. Jesus again is speaking. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, you see, it comes from in here. Sin is something in here. It's not just out there. It's here. Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, 
deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And then one other passage here just to drive this home is Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Let the Apostle Paul beat the dead horse a little bit here. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The lost man knows that the God of the Bible is there, suppresses that truth, pushes it down. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals, crawling creatures, idolatry in other words. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. But he doesn't stop there. He just keeps on going. Right? We're swirling the drain now at this point. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, in light of all of that, and notice we didn't even read anything from the book of Judges. I'll let you do that in your own time. Those of you who know the book of Judges know paints a pretty stark picture of the depravity of man. But in light of all of that, should we really be surprised by people's sin? Just the opposite. It ought to shock us when people do something right, <laughs> not when they sin. Now, why am I taking the time to emphasize this? Here's why. You are going to have people come to you whether it's a friend, a family member, or your own children, and they're going to confess things to you that you're going to be tempted to freak out about. 
And the way in which you respond is often a make or break moment. Because if you freak out and respond with shock and horror, oh, Johnny, how could you? Mary, you're not the person I thought you were. If you respond that way, you probably just slammed the door on any possibility of that person ever opening up to you again or opening up to any other Christian for that matter because the message that you just sent is that it's not safe to confess those kinds of things. Therefore, they don't come into the light and they don't get any help. And that's a tragedy. Why should we be shocked by their sin? Christians of all people should know better, right? We know how bad fallen humanity is. We've seen it around us, and we've seen it in ourselves. Why are we surprised? Now, none of this should be taken as excusing or making light of sin. The fact that depravity is universal doesn't make it any less serious, (laughs) right? But when we meet that depravity in the form of a flesh and blood human being sitting right across from us, how do we respond? Do we take a self-righteous attitude? How could you possibly do something like that? I would never do something like that. Or do we come alongside them? Because we, too, know the potential evil in us and how much we, too, need the grace of God on a moment-by-moment basis. Let me ask you, do people feel safe talking to you about their struggles, about the things hidden because of shame? And you may feel like you're a safe person to talk to, right? But the real test is, do other people see you as a safe person to talk to. And that's harder to discern sometimes. Surely there's, all, there's room for improvement for all of us in this area. We need the Spirit of Christ to make us more like Christ in this area. Think of the woman at the well. After she talks to the Lord, it says this about her in John four twenty-eight to 29. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Translation. Hey, I just talked to a guy who knows every sin I've ever committed. Come meet him. That's amazing. Somehow, Jesus was able to talk to people about their sin in such a way that they were attracted to him, not repulsed by him. And that's supernatural. But we have the Spirit of Christ, don't we? By His power, we can do the same. All right, so that was the second lesson. We shouldn't be surprised, shocked by sin. And hopefully, I explained what I mean by that and what I don't mean by that. That was lesson number two. Lastly, lesson number three. When confronting social issues or just sin in general, whether it's individual, whatever, we need to be careful that we don't lose sight of the gospel in the process. What is gospel? Well, gospel is a church word, right? It's a Bible word. It means good news, literally. Good news. 
And the good news is that 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to be our substitute. He lived the perfectly righteous life that we could never live. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross, suffering the punishment that those sins deserve. And he died in our place. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that the wrath of God really had been satisfied. The sin payment was complete. And he now lives forevermore so that anyone who turns away from their sin and trusts him will receive all the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection. That's the gospel. And that's good news. But when we're confronting social issues or just sin in general, it's easy to lose sight of the gospel in the process. And Patty mentioned that in the article. How can we lose the gospel? How do we lose the gospel? Well, one way is by treating the people on the other side like they are the enemy, right? They're they, them. They are not our enemy. Sin is the enemy. The devil is the enemy. And the way that these enemies are defeated is by the cross of Christ. And so as we're confronting sin in any form that it takes, we must beware of losing the gospel because it's the gospel that ultimately conquers sin. Everything else is just a temporary fix, as welcome and necessary as a temporary fix would be in many cases. How else can we lose sight of the gospel? We can lose sight of the gospel by forgetting that the people we're confronting are the very kinds of people that Jesus came into the world to save. The title of Patty's article says it all. The gospel is for baby killers. Whether it's the guy pressuring the woman to have an abortion, the woman who has the abortion, or the doctor who performs the abortion, These are the very kinds of people that Jesus came into the world to save. The gospel is for bad people, right? And we started with this passage earlier, but once again, let's turn to Luke 5. I said we would come back to this. Luke chapter 5, and we'll skip right to verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Just as perfectly healthy people don't need a doctor, Perfectly righteous people don't need a savior. Jesus saves sinners, not righteous people. Because there is no such thing as a righteous person. There are none righteous, no, not one. He saves sinners. Righteous people don't even need to be saved. They're already righteous. Sinners need 
to be saved. And I don't care how bad or extreme the sin is in someone's life, it's that person that Jesus came to save. Sin qualifies a person for judgment. Yeah, it does. But it also qualifies a person for salvation. In fact, listen to me here, a person's sin is the only thing that can qualify them for salvation. I remember signing up for classes in college, you know, and they have the class, and then it tells you what, are, what the prerequisites are for taking the class. Well, if you look up salvation, there's only one prerequisite for salvation. It's sin. It's that you're a sinner. That's it. So as we're confronting sin, whether it's a social issue or personal sin in someone's life, we must constantly bear in mind that Jesus came into the world to save these very kinds of people. That's what he does. That's what he's in the business of doing. It's what glorifies him, is saving sinners. He is a friend of sinners. And then lastly today, when confronting people about social issues or, again, just sin in general, we can lose sight of the gospel by forgetting that apart from the grace and mercy of God, we ourselves would be no different. Have we been Christians for so long that we've forgotten how wicked we once were? Have I been a Christian for so long that I've forgotten about the pride and the arrogance and the anger and the violence punching holes in my bedroom wall? Have I forgotten about the pornography and the promiscuity and the booze and the parties? Have I forgotten about the vandalism and the thefts? Again, have we forgotten how wicked we once were and how deceived and enslaved to sin? And have we forgotten that the only thing that made the difference in our life was the mercy and grace of God? Listen to Paul in Titus 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice the key words here, kindness, love, mercy, grace. These are the only thing that made a difference in your life, if you're a Christian here this morning. The kindness, love, mercy, and grace of God. Where is boasting? It's gone. 
Where is pride? It's gone. Where is looking down your nose at the sins of others? It's gone. Because we know that apart from the grace of God, we would be in the exact same place. Right? And when you realize that, boasting and pride and looking down on people is out the window. The Apostle Paul had no problem handing Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. That's 1 Timothy 1.20. But at the same time, he never forgot that he himself was once a blasphemer. This is what he says right before that in 1 Timothy 1. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith, notice the key words again, grace, with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That's the attitude we ought to have. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So as I say, he didn't have any problem dealing with those blasphemers, Hymenaeus and Alexander. But not until he reminds us that he too was once a blasphemer. And the only thing that made a difference in his life was the mercy of God. Let me finish by reading the last paragraph of Patty's article once more. If you're a Christian reading this who has never been a party to an abortion, praise God. No, seriously, praise God. Praise God that he spared you that sin and praise God that he saved you from all of your sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. May I humbly ask that you remember us in the midst of your zeal to end abortion? Maybe a pause to think about who will see what you post before you post it. Maybe a phone call or a text to see how your post-abortive friend is holding up. If we truly believe that the gospel is the answer to all of the ills we feel, personally and societally, shouldn't our news feeds and our mouths be as full of the gospel as they are with the horrors of abortion? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace this morning. And we pray that you would strengthen our hands to speak up for the unborn. Lord, to pray. But at the same time, Lord, to make sure that our mouths are full of the gospel and our hands are reaching out to minister real grace to real people. 
Father, I just pray that you'd help us to be good representatives of our Lord who saw people and loved them and felt compassion for them. Thank you this morning for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that Christ died for sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.